Thanks, Kurt. Yeah, let's pause for a moment and pray again. God, thanks for um, this word from the book of Acts and the life of Paul and the opportunity we have to um, reflect in it on what you have for us in this year to come. Uh, thank you for the year to come, God. We thank you in advance of it, all of it. Um, thank you for the, the highs that are to come, the lows that are in front of us as well, God. You are in it all. We want to see you and experience you and learn from you in it all. Um, and most of all, God, we want to um, become more like you through your son. And so would this word shape our lives. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, quick show of hands. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? You knew this question was coming. Keep your hands up. (laughs) Your hand. I guess there's only one of you. Okay, well, so for those that didn't, a little New Year's resolution inspiration for you from our friend Jimmy Fallon, just to get the juices flowing. Here you go. Turn the volume up. You're going to need it. I could, I could do a whole sermon on Jimmy Fallon and my love for Jimmy Fallon. So, um, and that, as funny as that is, the unhappy reality for all of us, whether um, your news resolution is five words, four words, or 15 years, words, or none of you made them, so this doesn't pertain to you, is that um, most of our resolutions are going to fail by mid-January. So welcome to the party. I know that's according to um, data from Strava, which is a social network for athletes that I use. I, I like to think of myself as an athlete. Um, but Strava is this social network that analyzed about 31.5 million fitness records last year from its users and found that on the second Friday in January, which is coming up January 10th, most of us, most of us will, our annual commitments will just begin to fall apart. So next Friday, <laughs> See, you wasted your time. But um, granted, Strava only draws its uh, research from people who are fitness enthusiasts, athletes, so it's slightly skewed, but then consider a 1988 study from the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment, which produced similar findings. 55% of participants in that study, this is 30, 40 years ago, I guess now, uh, stuck to their resolutions for just one month. So almost the end of... January, and then another recent study said that 80% of people failed in their news resolutions last year altogether. Like, so, why? Which begs, why? That begs the question, why even begin? Why begin, or why is it so hard, I should say, to keep a New Year's resolution? Um, one answer, wrote uh, Joseph Luciani's Dr. Joe on the internet, he says that uh, change, or all change, entails some degree of emotional friction which in turn generates a heated state we call stress. So whether you're feeling anxious, depressed, frustrated, fatigued, weak and out of control, or just simply bored, emotional friction or stress becomes what he says, the high octane fuel of failure. And so when it comes to handling the stress involved in change or doing a New Year's resolution, many of us as well-adjusted people, happy, overweight, out of shape, bored, just have the same basic fundamental problem, which is self-sabotage. We just, change is too hard, so why even try? That's kind of the attitude. So what do we do about that? I mean, most of you just already decided I'm not going to make resolutions this year. I win. So, but do we resign to the facts and just accept that meaningful and deep and lasting and real change is, is unrealistic, and so we don't even try? Or is there an alternative for us? And I believe there's an alternative, which is going to be the thesis for today's sermon, This time of year, I'm usually challenged by a quote that I put in the bulletin for you by G.K. Chesterton. And he said this, the object of the new year uh, is not that we should have a new year, it's that we should have new souls, a new nose, a new feet, a new backbone, new ears, and new eyes. 
Then he goes on to say, unless we start the new year on the strange assumption that we've never existed before, it's certain, quite certain, that we'll never exist after. Unless we start the new year on this assumption that we've never existed before, it's quite certain that we'll never exist afterwards. And what he's echoing in in this quote is this idea implicit to Christianity, but often lost in the minutia of New Year's resolutions, that the Christian life is about transformation. It's not just incremental change that we're after, it's radical renewal. That's actually the perspective we all need as we begin any year. Um, That God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, is about new creation. It's about starting over with us, doing something in our lives he's never done before. Um, And so the question for us is, are you open to that? Whether you made a New Year's resolution or not, are you open to what God might be doing in your life this year, irrespective of your goals and your hopes and your dreams for what 2020 holds? As good as those things are, are you open enough to the Spirit of God moving in your life or our lives collectively that uh, whatever change God's Spirit brings into our lives, we might embrace and then walk through? Are, Are you open to that? And if you are, let me just suggest that Acts chapter 9, you could pick a lot of different passages in the Bible. This is kind of like choose your own adventure today. So I chose Acts 9. We're starting a new series next week. Um, and so I, Acts 9, Paul's Damascus Road conversion is kind of a guide, has been a guide for me anyway for, the, for years, on how change can happen in your life. It's a really radical story of conversion. We look at it from that perspective often, and those of us that don't have conversion stories like Paul's, we go, well, it's not my story. I would say his conversion story can be yours. No matter how how you came to Christ, and no matter what lies ahead of you in the coming year, whether that's a weight loss goal, or a journaling, or exercise habit, or a desire to invest more in relationships, or just a total, complete revision of your life, Paul provides, I think, a, a way in which you might move beyond failed resolutions and acquire a new soul, I think. And that's the question on the table today. So to that end, to help frame this study, let me just suggest that there's three facets that God, of change that God caused in Paul's life that are outlined that are kind of deeper than just the surface. And they are, um, again, outlined in your bulletin, the gift of a new self-understanding, which is in verse 4, the challenging presence of an untamed God, verse 5, and then in verses 6 to 8, the calling to arise and receive what God has for us, okay? So the, a gift, a challenge, and a call, okay? So first, the gift. Look at verse 4 with me and how Jesus addresses Paul, or he was Saul at this moment. We're not going to get into his name change, but he's, when he first speaks, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So did you notice that? He says, why are you persecuting me? Not them, me. And the reason that's important is it looks like a glitch because, you know, it's repeated a couple times just to make sure we don't miss it. Because you see, if you notice the context that Kurt read, Paul had just asked for letters from the high priest in order to go and bring any Christians he could find to court, basically to trial. So he's kind of like a bounty hunter. He's kind of like the Mandalorian, I guess, which means he's persecuting them. But Jesus doesn't say them. He says me. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, I'm sure that's probably the reason Paul said, who are you? Like, it's as if he's saying, you? Like, what do you mean, you? Like, I'm, how could I be persecuting you? I'm going after them. This ragtag, no-name, bunch of whatevers. Uh, In other words, I think Paul is saying the most respectful way you can find, like, how could I be persecuting you, whoever you are? You're too bright and beautiful to be persecuting. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So this is really the bombshell of the whole passage that we often overlook. 
in, in which Jesus is saying, I have such an intimate and radical union and solidarity and relationship with my people, so, cl- so close and so intimate with them that whatever's true of them is true of me too. Uh, and whatever is true of me is true of them. They're in me, I'm in them. I'm not just their example and their rabbi. They're in me, we are in union. This is John 14, verse 20, when he says, I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. And then he goes on in that passage, if you remember that passage, to say the time's coming, I think prophetically speaking of Paul, the time's coming when they will put you out of the synagogues, they'll try and kill you, and they'll do so because they think they're offering a service to God. They're doing it out of a good heart in some ways, but they only do that because they don't know the Father or me. They don't know that I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. They don't know that yet. So we've been given this gift of a new self-understanding, which is we're in Christ. That's the gift. Which is why the first thing that Paul ever heard from Jesus ever, became, and it became the basis in some ways of everything he wrote. If you read the letters of Paul, in all of his letters, he never once used the word Christian. Not once. Whereas about 165 times, I've been told, in his writings, he uses this, this phrase, in Christ. And so you have all these odd little statements all over the letters of Paul. For example, Galatians 2, he says very succinctly, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And notice the verb tense. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a present perfect. It means something happened in the past and it has continuing effect in the present. I have been crucified with Christ. Not I was crucified with Christ or he was crucified for me, as we often say. So if you're in Christ, you're united with him in his suffering and his death now today. That's what this is about. And you're also united with him in his risen life now today, if you get that. So when he died, you shared in that death, then and now. And it has lasting effect today. And when he rose, you shared in that resurrection then and now. And it has lasting effect today. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what Paul says. The person I was before I knew Christ is no longer the person I am now. The Christian life is not self-improvement. It's not a set of resolutions. It's Christ expressing himself through your life. It's not about reforming your old self or a resolution to become an incrementally better new self. We're talking about a, a new creation that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new person. They're a new creation. You've never existed before. Happy new you is kind of the idea here. And so Paul got this, beginning on the road to Damascus, and then for years afterwards, it took him years and years, but he spun it out. He got it. He got that to be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore to anyone. He got that our frenetic attempts to craft and find identity. Like you, you look on any social media place, app now, it's all a crafting an identity, how you look to other people, how you present. That tireless work to manage your reputation can end because you're in Christ and your identity is shaped by Christ. We can rest in Christ. For those of us that are restless and tired, you can find rest. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone ever. You're not your boss, not your uh, spouse sometimes, not your kids and what they think about you. You don't have to worry about if you checked the box of that resolution or not. Most of you didn't. So you don't have to worry about that. It's not a big deal because you're in Christ. You don't have to climb the ladder of success and meaning to find purpose because you're in Christ. And thus, your life, my life, all of our life, as Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. And that's freedom. Absolute freedom and confidence that we have to go into this new year. Um, Christ dwelling in, in us by his spirit is a guarantee that we can and will and are changing with each, each passing moment, each breath. We're adopted into the family of God, not just by name, Christian, but the spirit now 
lives in us, forms us, and we become more and more like Christ himself every day. And so I guess it's a little bit like the difference between Batman and Spider-Man, to give you a little kind of cookies in the lower shelf analogy here. Just hang with me for a moment. This is how my brain works. So Batman, as you know, is a rich and strong man with lots of cool gadgets. We all love this guy. But his superpowers, as far as I understand, all stem from his gadgets and his wealth, right? Am I right? Doesn't have, like, without the suit, he's nothing. That's the whole point of those movies, right? He's so depressed because he has no, no powers, right? That's the Lego movie in a nutshell. Am I right? Okay, so, but then Spider-Man has a few accessories. He's got a cool suit, little web shooters. But he's a superhero. Why? Because he got bit by a radioactive spider, and now he's obtained this amazing power to climb buildings and leap over walls and do things that you've never been able to do before, even though he's just a 99-pound weakling, right? So he has a new power accessible to him within him. Do you see my point? Christ in you makes you more like Spider-Man than Batman. That's the point. Something outside of you entered into you and changed you, your nature. You have a power you didn't have before, a capacity for joy and peace and justice and mercy that you never had before. Um, and I suppose the one problem with that analogy, I mean, there's a lot of problems with it that you think of, but the one problem is that Spider-Man became something more than human. He became a superhuman. Well, instead of being, uh, being, becoming more than human, we're, we're actually being restored by Christ to our true humanity. He is the one true human. Um, he is the expression by God of what it looks like and uh, what we're supposed to live like. Like, he is human, <laughs> if you could say it. And so to become fully and truly human is to be in Christ, not more than human. Um, so when you realize that, and when you understand what's true of Christ is true of you, that's going to convert you every day of your life. And that's going to cause transformation in your life. Um, that'll take any New Year's resolution you've made and amplify that a hundredfold. That's going to free you, okay? So that's the first thing. The first catalyst for change is this understanding that Christ is in me. Here's number two. Um, it's, it's the conversion of our view of God. Notice what Paul says in verse five. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, who are you, Lord? In other words, great that I'm in you and you're in me, but who are you anyway? I don't even, I've never met you before. What do you even mean by that? Okay? And that's the crux question because up to this point, Paul thought he knew who God was. He, he, he knew who God was and wasn't like what God wanted, what it meant to be faithful to God. Remember what he says in Philippians, I was, before I met Christ, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know? In other words, Paul had a very clear view of God, what God was like, what God was not like, what it meant to be faithful and obedient to God. Um, And so he he grew up in the church. He grew up singing the songs. He grew up saying the prayers. He'd heard all the sermons. In fact, one of the last sermons he heard before this was the sermon by Stephen, before Stephen was stoned, as Paul presided over his stoning. You remember that? And he heard Stephen say that the temple, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system were all going to be made obsolete. And Paul would say, no, this is the reason Paul wants him dead, because God would never do that. God spent eons building, you know, the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system. The Bible would be absolutely abrogated and cast aside. God would never do that. So he had this understanding of who God was. And what it meant to follow God and be faithful to God. But here, on the road to Damascus, listen to this, Saul's literally knocked to the ground off his feet, and by what? There's the light, there's the voice, and actually I think it's the truth, which is this, that the real, the real reason he's knocked to the ground off his feet is actually he's having a head-on collision 
with the real God. Um, a God who has his own reality, a God he didn't create, a God who's actually physically there. See, Saul had kind of constructed a God for himself. In his mind, he had a God he wanted, he had a God he could manage, he had a God he could control. He did not have a God who had his own reality, who could knock him down, take him off his feet. And and in order to understand what that means, we have to remember something. And and that is that most of us, I would say all of you, uh, are probably not likely to construct a God like Paul's God, uh, a God of the Pharisees, a very severe and harsh God, right? A a God who's going to go stone people who don't do the right things, right? You're not going to do, hopefully. In fact, the average person in Seattle, if you just do a little man or woman on the street thing, you ask them, do you believe in God? Average person's going to say something like, yeah, maybe. There might be a God. There's probably at least a higher power. Am I right? We are often, I think, we think of Seattle as such an an atheist city, but I think there's a lot of spirituality here. And so if you press people on what that means to them, you ask for an example, what's that God or that higher power like? If it has a personhood to it, they'll probably say that he, she, or it is a God of love or a God of tolerance, a God who accepts people just as they are. Am I right? For who they are. And as different as that is from Saul's God, a God of judgment, I want to submit to you, it's every, every bit as much the same kind of God. It's a God we've made. And here's what I mean by that. Think about that God for a moment. The God you've made is just basically a projection of you, okay? So your expectations, your needs, your values, your culture. It, and so in our culture, according to that script, it's a God of self-help, not of transformation. It's a God who tolerates you, doesn't offer you transformation or change. You, you've created the God in your image, what you need from that God. Am, you follow me here? And so you see the difference. If, you've, if the God you've made is really just a projection of you, your needs, your wants, your hopes, that God can't convert you. It won't. That God is, is about accepting you. That God won't change you. That God, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> there's, you're fine. That God's not going to transform you because you don't need transformation. That God's not going to help you because you kind of got it locked and loaded on your own. Um, that God's actually a construction of your heart. And what we need more than anything else, according to Scripture, is a God who's greater than our hearts. You've heard this before from 1 John 3.20. One of my favorite Bible verses that says, if our hearts condemn us, what does it say? God is greater than our hearts. And the reason that the author of that letter says that is it means that our hearts are prone to self-condemnation. We naturally feel bad about ourselves. Even though we say we're all good, (laughs) we naturally, internally are just churning all the time. And so we need a God, Scripture says, greater than our hearts that will come in and declare the truth to us and say, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong about who you are. There's a purpose for you. There's a truth about you. You might feel guilty. You're not guilty. You might feel worthless. You're not worthless. You might feel condemned. You're not condemned. There's a God greater than your heart. And the key is that declaration is impossible for God to make unless he's greater than your heart, unless he's outside your heart. There has to be a God who's real, who's there, who's absolutely other than you and any one of us in the room who can knock you off your feet and tell you, no, that's not true about you. I love how C.S. Lewis once put this in the in book Mere Christianity. He said, imagine yourself living in a house. God comes in to rebuild that house, right? At first, you can kind of understand what he's up to. He's getting the drains right because there's leaks and he's stopping the leaks in the roof too. And you knew, you knew those jobs needed to be done. So that's why you paid God to come and do it right? 
But, but now he doesn't seem to be doing the things that you asked him to do. What, what's he up to, C.S. Lewis says? The explanation is he's building a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing, putting on extra flooring, running up towers, making courtyards. And here's how he ends that quote. You thought you, as this house, were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come in and live this, in this palace himself. He's, he's greater than your heart. He's greater than the, anything you could expect of him. That, that's the God C.S. Lewis describes elsewhere as this untamed God. Do you remember that place in the Chronicles of Narnia where the Pevensies, these kids in that story, are just learning for the first time about Aslan, the God figure, Christ figure in this book. And they're in the beaver's home, and beaver has that famous line, Aslan's on the move. Remember that line? And then the, one of the kids says, they all pipe up, Aslan, who's Aslan? And uh, tell us about Aslan. And of course, Beaver says, well, Aslan's a lion. And they all are like shaking their boots very understandably. And one of them says, is he safe? Because I'll, I'll, if he's safe, I'm, I'm good with that. To which the beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. So you hear that. We, what we need instead of a safe God is a good God. Like we kind of sang a few minutes ago, an untamed God. A God with whom relationship it will bring conversion to your life, change. A God in some way, shape, or form that tells you things you don't want to hear about yourself, and other times has the power to knock you off your feet. Uh, a God who offers goodness to you, as we sang. A God who is in your life to change your life, not just confirm all the things you want to know. And it's only when we're faced with that untamed God, only then will we experience the real, lasting, and living change that we want in our lives. That's the second thing that we need a challenging presence of an untamed God in order to experience change. Here's the last thing. I'll be real quick here, and we'll come to communion. Uh, it's in verses 6 to 8, and it's this calling that Paul receives, where he, you know, he's knocked off his feet, and then he's told immediately, get up, go into the city, and there you'll be told what to do. And, uh, and of course, Saul's blind, because he opens his eyes, he can't see anything. Um, and so his friends that are with him lead him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days, he's there blind before he does anything else. And I love that. This image of a blind Paul, he's invited to get up and begin walking blind. I don't know how many of you have ever had to do that, like do a trust walk, or we've done trust falls before, but like walk somewhere absolutely blind. Anyone? No, none of us. I mean, it's, it would be very scary if you used your sight your entire life to navigate, and suddenly you have to navigate not seeing where you're going, not even seeing what's in front of you, but literally being led by others to your destination and figuratively uh, relearning what it means to live by faith for Paul. He, he, he thought he knew what faith looked like. It's the law, it's the commandments, it's doing what God says. And now I'm blind, literally blind. Go, wait, you'll be led, you'll be told. That's blindness. And I imagine that's a very hard thing for Paul to accept. You know, he's probably like a type A or an 8 on the Enneagram or just driven. And probably hard for you too, whether you're an 8 or not. I heard uh, this year is, the, is an optical year, 2020, right? So it's the year of vision. And I'm hearing a lot about vision right now. I don't know about you. And casting vision and catching a vision for what God has. Letting go of your goals, <laughs> relinquishing your need to see into the future, taking your hands off your life, Man, that, that is a prophetic word for us in 2020. Like going and waiting and just, like a friend asks you, hey, what's your vision for this year? And you say, I don't know. We'll see. I don't know, I'm waiting. 
We'll see. I'm going to be led and be told. That's so counterintuitive. Like nobody's going to be super inspired by that. Uh, But Paul is invited to do that because you see that's exactly what God has always done with God's people. So most of us will be familiar with that passage from Hebrews 11. You know, the Hall of Faith passage, which begins this way. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see. And then this, this classic definition of faith is kind of explicated by then person after person after person. You kind of live that out. Faithful people, generations. And one person I've always loved in that list is Abraham. And in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it says this about Abraham. Abraham said yes to God's call to travel to an unknown country, a place that would become his home, obeying and going, even though he had no idea where he was going. He went, though he didn't know where he was going. And I love that because it, it not only connotes sort of a profound sense of trust, but also an openness to an adventure. Like, sure, there's dark days for Abraham and dark days for you. Uh, and there are struggles ahead for Abraham in that story and for you. Uh, but Abraham went anyway because he knew that ahead of him was an adventure worth embracing, um, that God would be in that. He could trust God. God's good. So the question for us now as we begin the year is, is God inviting you to say yes, just yes, to the call to arise and go to an unknown place that he wants to take you? Is God inviting you to rise and walk into whatever he has for you? You may not even know yet. Like, you don't see it yet. You don't even know what that means. It's so abstract. Like, that doesn't matter. The point is, are you going to arise, get up, and begin walking? Maybe be led by others, these faithful people around you. That's the beginning of faith. So what might it look like for you at the dawn of this new decade to just do that, to be led, to rise, to receive, to be led and to wait. I mean, that might just be the metaphor for discipleship that our community needs, to rise and receive, which is why I can't think of a better way to come into the new year than communion in this Lord's table, because in some ways, this is just a ritual for us, for many of us. We've been doing this for years. We're well acquainted with it, body of blood of Jesus. It's all good. Today, though, this invitation to arise and walk into what God has for us, blind, and yet God will provide the vision at the appointed time, that might just be a fresh opportunity for you to begin anew. Uh, To not merely mark a new year, but to allow God to continue or perhaps again new creation for you. So what are you, let me ask, what are you rising into right now as you begin this year? Or what do you need to rise into? What what might God be leading you toward? Um, I thought about that question um, a little bit, just to kind of prime the pump a little bit. Uh, and to be honest with you, last year ended for me, I was in a funk. <laughs> like, it was just one of those years I was really, I just ended discouraged. You know, I saw some of you at Christmas Eve, I'm like, Merry Christmas, you know? A little discouraged. And, I, and, and so in these couple weeks since, I've, I've been reminded of David's great prayer in Psalm 51, where he prays, create in me, a God, a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit in me, restore to me the joy of your salvation, grant for me a willing spirit, and sustain me. Um, And I I looked at the message translation this week of that, which says this, and I love this. God, make a fresh start in me and shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Make a fresh start in me and shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Bring me back from gray exile and put a fresh wind into my sails. I know that's what I'm needing, 
don't know about you, a Genesis week, a week of God doing something he's never done before, maybe a year, <laughs> God's creative work in my life. What about you? What do you need to rise into? Could be in your family, could be in your work, could be in our church. We're rising into a new season as a, as a community with two services that don't feel the same. They're different. We're changing. How might we be people in a community that rises into that? Um, and in rising, experience all that God has for us in the wake of the faith we, we express. Let's take a moment. I just want to invite you to think on that question. What do you need to rise into? What are you rising into this year? Um, just meditate on that, and then we'll have a chance to come to the table and receive from God what he has for us. Well, God, what a great question for us to be reflecting on as we begin this year, uh, this invitation to rise and receive from you. Um, some of us, God, might need to go back to the beginning and, and, uh, and rise into our true identity in you and receive from you um, who you are. Let that fuel us. Um, others of us, God, might need to be knocked off our feet and then rise again into uh, a new concept of you, God, that you're bigger than anything we ever asked or imagined. Others of us, God, are rising under burdens for work and family. These are too heavy for us, God, so we give them to you. And we thank you now that in faith, God, we get to rise as a community and receive from you um, the gift of your body and your blood, broken and shed for us. Gifts that um, will empower our lives, God. Um, So would you infuse these gifts, God, with your spirit, that your spirit might move into our lives today, and then after today, tomorrow, and the next day. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.